I hope I can steal a little summoning from you, Dave. Three balls, two strikes, the pitch. Swing and a long drive. Deep left The flags go up, churning and burning. They yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Few burning fast on an empty. Welcome to another episode of Stats on Deck. I'm Nick Laporte, and I'm joined by Jake Adams. We're going to be talking about a lot of things today, starting with Jake. The Boston Red Sox got their rings today. Yes. But most importantly, and way more optimistically, the Capitals playoffs are starting this week. Here we go. Alex Ovechkin and company are going to be starting their their protection of the ship. It's time to defend the cup. On Thursday. Yes, sir. That is what's happening. Now, let me just say something. The NHL and hockey is a sport that's not going to let you down. It's not going to nope. build you up with false hope and, and, and a lack of optimism and then just bitterly crush you with a 3-9 and nine start to your season. No, they're, right. you, know, you know what they're going to do? <laughs> the NHL and, and the Capitals are going to win a Stanley Cup, and then they're going to follow that up the next year. But not a hangover, cough, no. Boston, cough. No, they're going to follow it up by winning their division for a fourth straight year and going to the playoffs. That's, that's exactly right. Um... We're talking, of course, about the, the rough start the Red Sox have had. But um, if we're going to talk about the lows, we're also going to talk about the highs. And yes, sir. that all started with last season's Red Sox team. Um, 108 games in the regular season. They were winners. They won their division uh, pretty handily over their uh, rival, the Yankees. Eight and games. Eight, an eight-game lead. And uh, – Usually, from the Yankees' perspective, when you win 100 games, you don't expect to lose your division by eight games. So um, the Red Sox were dominant in the regular season last year. And something we saw in the previous two seasons was the Red Sox failing to get out of the first round of the playoffs. That's right. And we, we wondered at the time. We knew the Red Sox were good. We didn't know how good, and it all started with a series against those Yankees, and um, it was a little touch and go up first. Jake, talk me through how that series went for the Red Sox. So if memory serves correct, you and I were watching this game together, and this was the first of many Craig Kimbrell heart attacks. That's right. So the game starts off. The Red Sox get a one-two-three inning. Chris Sale, although you know this is his first start, really coming off of first real full start coming off of the DL and the rehab. And uh, Chris Sale goes in, gives one-two-three, the uh, the fastball, you know, velocity which everybody's fascinated with was hovering between ninety-three and ninety-six, which is perfectly fine. And he gets a one-two-three inning, two strikeouts, yep. and then like picture perfect start JD Martinez comes up in his first at bat and hits a two run home run. Yeah, it was, it was exactly the start they needed, especially after signing Martinez late into the off season. Um, After David Ortiz retired, they were looking for that, uh, that power out of the middle of their lineup and um, JD Martinez in the regular season, he was the answer. 
Yeah, it, there's no. I mean, 45 home runs, won the Phantom Triple Crown, which is one of your favorite stats. Yes. Uh, um, and and really carried and was that big four three four hitter that the Red Sox needed to get over the hump in those uh, two previous years of getting knocked out in the first round. Right. It was kind of that we have all the pieces, but we need a guy that um, when needed can hit a ball over the fence or drive in runs and be reliable at the plate to to create some offense. And that's what they found in, in J.D. Martinez. So they got that home run, and then it's a little bit back and forth. The Yankees score a couple of runs, but it's really – it was a pitching duel. And one of the questions similar to this year was, how was the Red Sox bullpen going to hold up and get to Kimbrell? Right. Well, it turns out that it wasn't, can we get to Kimbrell? It was, once we get to him, what is he going to do? Because Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier, and company were fantastic the entire playoff series and, um, and throughout the entire playoffs. And Craig Kimbrell was actually the shaky component to that. Right, and it's not something we expected because – Ever since Craig Kimbrell first came up for the Braves uh, many years back, he has just been a lockdown closer. Yep. And so um, it's a good point because Matt Barnes, Ryan Brazier, the two key guys out of that bullpen, they were kind of unknown at the time. We didn't know how good they were. And it started in that first series. They proved that they have what they – between the two of them, they have what it takes to shut down teams late in games in big postseason games. Right. So that that was that was something that was obviously like even Joe Kelly, who had who had struggled in parts of the season, entered into just a different state going into the playoffs. I mean, when you have you know 100 miles an hour with you know good off speed stuff and you can actually locate it, it's it's devastating at any level and. Joe Kelly should be given credit because he was definitely a question mark through a lot of the season. And he found a way to just figure out whatever it was to make him productive in the playoffs. And he was a huge component in every, in every spot he was in. Um, But going, going off of the Kimbrell thing, that first game, you don't, you don't think to yourself, okay, once we got to Kimbrell, we, I think we had a four, two lead. It was like, okay, I, I feel really confident about this. And then he gives up the solo home run to judge in the bullpen right? to start the ending off. And then I start to think to myself, I was like, this is not the same guy. Yeah. He definitely looked, he looked kind of not scared that that's not the right word, but he looked not, quite the same as he had been for really his time in Boston and over his entire career. Yeah. It, it was just, it was just like a shakiness. It was almost like now that the expectation, because even when he had made, you know, come in big spots with the Braves, there was never really the expectation of we're going, we should be winning these games and we're going to have a real run at winning a world series. It was, it was always like the, well, once we give the ball to Craig, hopefully it'll work out. And being with the Red Sox and how dominant the team had been through the whole regular season, there was an expectation place. It's like once we hand you the ball, the game should be over. Right. So no, that's, that, that's a good point. Yeah, um, that was probably the biggest issue over the course of the postseason for the Red Sox. I mean, the hitting was there. The starting pitching largely was there. The other guys in the bullpen showed up. The guys who came off the bench got it done. But every time they had a lead, the question was, is Craig going to hold this lead? 
And are we going to be able to breathe afterwards? Right. So that that was that was one of the big things. So they we the Red Sox found a way to manage, and and Craig figured out a way out of the ninth inning. We ended up winning that game, which is especially in a short series is huge. And I I remember telling you several times it was like if one team is going to figure out a way to beat this Boston team and knock them out of the playoffs, it's going to happen in the first round because there's there's you only have to you, you only have to win three games and that's the quickest route to getting to the Red Sox because we both were pretty confident when we when we started into the playoffs we didn't think anybody was going to be able to beat them in a seven game set right so that that was interesting so now going into game two you've got David Price on the mound he's obviously had his chasm of postseason issues and nobody can stop talking about that and he gets absolutely shelled yeah. He, I mean, gives up home runs to Gary Sanchez, Aaron Judge. I mean, these things are hit to the freaking moon. And all of the, you know, all of the uh, doubters and all of the Boston sports writers who have loved to ride on David Price's back are just filling out their columns. Yeah, and, and I think I remember we were talking at the time, the discussion was something like, if this goes to a game five, because we figured – um we figured if if the Red Sox were trailing in the series, they were going to use Chris Sale in Game Four, and we yep. were we were thinking to ourselves, if this goes to a Game Five, can you allow David Price to pitch again against the Yankees? It was that serious. We were concerned, right? And and it, and I think rightfully so because he hadn't shown the ability to be able to pitch at this level. Like it was just a block. It was a yips, whatever you want to call it. He did not possess the he had not shown the ability to be able to be successful in the playoffs and he had gotten a rap for it. And as we know now, he came out of that in, in tenfold and was a primarily a huge reason of why we made it past the Astros and why we won the World Series. Right. But, and I think I think that game played a huge part in that, even if uh he like he doesn't have to come out and say it, because once you have such a such a rough game there and but your team still moves on. You've got to just be thinking to yourself, well, you know what? Nothing worse can really happen. So why don't I just settle down and and do what I do? No, it's a it's a great point. I think the other thing to think about is, I mean, like this podcast stats on deck. I mean, like you have to think about the actual logistics and the statistics of what a left-handed pitcher and what type of lineup he was facing. I mean, you're talking about. I mean the Yankees who set the set the record for most home runs in a season. Right. And and he's going through a chasm of all power hitting right handers. I mean, their entire lineup from top to finish was guys like Andrew McCutcheon, who's still capable to hit the long ball and hit for doubles off the wall, which he did. You had Aaron Judge coming up who had led the uh, led the league in home runs two years prior. You had Aaron, you had um Gary Sanchez who had found out finally how to hit a baseball and be a productive <laughs> baseball player right as soon as the playoffs kicked in. I mean, there were Luke Voigt even was playing out of his body, another power right-handed hitter facing a lefty. It, I mean, yeah. that stuff, that stuff doesn't just go away because it's the playoffs. I mean, you have an advantage there. I mean, oh, absolutely. It, I mean, the hitter, the hitter, especially power hitter. I mean, David Price isn't throwing 98 anymore. If he doesn't locate, he's going to get torn up. It doesn't matter if it's October. It doesn't matter if it's September or whatever month. If, right. if he's not going to locate, especially against these right-handed power hitters, ball's going to get hit, hit over the fence. It wasn't like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, it I was think, definitely. It was explainable after the fact. I just think we were so shocked at the time 
Right. Um, especially because the Red Sox had looked good in game one. So it, it ended up being tied one to one going to New York. And this is when the series really got interesting, in my opinion. The infamous boombox, I think, <laughs> is, is, I think, exactly where this series is turned. And can we, can we, I'm going to ask you, what, what do you think was going through Aaron Judge's mind in his short lived career? To the to that point, when I think, he decided I think it, to break out the box. Well, he's. I think it was, and we see this with a lot of young players. Because remember, he's he's in his second full season in the big leagues, um, and this happens a lot. Also, when guys have success early on, I'm not saying he has an ego problem, but um, he's definitely feeling confident, especially after hitting a couple home runs in the series and feeling comfortable at the plate. You get a little, you feel a little full of yourself and you're like, uh, you have this, this stupid idea to play New York, New York on a boom box. And uh, it probably sounded really good in his head at the time, but um, it was, it kind of turned out to be a punk move. There's no other way to put it. Well, let's, let's look at this from like, let's look at this from the situation that they're in, right? They're playing against a team in a division with a, with a rivalry that spans longer than you or I or the majority of people have been on the planet, right? right? And this the team that you just stole a game – let me not say steal because they, they beat us 8-3. to three. I mean, it was, it was soundly. I, they, they took a game on the road, which is what you want to do in any playoff format. When you're on the road, you want to take one of two, right? Yeah. You, you managed to do that. It's a great success for your team. That's definitely confidence to build off of going back to your place. When a team, when they're the best team in baseball, they've won 108 games and they've dominated all season. Why do you want to give them any semblance of motivation after beating the, after beating them badly on their own field? Oh yeah. Like, where's the thought process? Yeah. It's, you never want to give a team that bulletin board material, I mean, these are professionals. They don't need this kind of stuff to be successful. But sure. when, we're, when we're talking about a team as talented as the Red Sox in uh, heading into New York right there, don't give them any extra, like you said, motivation to, to, uh, to, to win that series. Because as we know, which we're, we're going to get to in a second, that series didn't leave New York. Right. And it- and, but that's the thing. It's like, where is where is the leadership in that clubhouse to be like, listen, Aaron, like, this is a great win. Like, we're all feeling really good, happy plane flight back to New York. We don't need to poke them. Right, right. Like, I, think, like, I think if he looks back on it, he'll realize how how it was a mistake because and, – and, and the bottom line is the Red Sox just outplayed the Yankees the next two games, like – uh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say the boombox caused it to happen, but but even if it did just one percent, even if it affected the Red Sox one percent to make them more motivated, then it was a stupid thing to do because the, the reality of the situation is, if the Yankees win that game in Yankee Stadium, take a two-one lead, you're sitting pretty in that series right there as a Yankees no question. fan. And, and instead, as we know, the Red Sox took Game Three in uh, one of the one of I know your favorite games of the yeah. entire run. So, so talk me through talk me through it. 
so you're coming in in New York, one of the toughest environments of any team to come and play baseball. I mean, it's uh, in in a lot of people's opinion, it's it's somewhat the mecca of baseball. Is that you know, even if it's the new stadium, that Yankee Stadium, October kind of feel. I mean, you have six million people all with their TVs on or in present, breathing down the back of an opponent, and it is pretty much the lion's mouth. Yeah, and to go in to Yankee Stadium with a with a bunch of optimism brewing for the for the Yankees being in a very hostile environment. The Red Sox put up 16 runs in an absolute just ass kicking of a game on your own stadium. And and of course, like uh, any writers and everything are going to mention the boombox thing. But I mean, you can throw all that out. I mean, this is just an absolute smackdown. And in, in just Red Sox history, in 2004, in the AL Championship Series, um, the Yankees beat the Red Sox in their own place 19-8, to and they called it the Boston Massacre yeah. in, in the papers the next day. Well, this was the New York Massacre. Yeah, this was, this was revenge in a lot of ways. And um, on my list of my personal favorite moments of this Red Sox run, uh, one of them happened in this game, Brock Holt was the uh, – Brock? excuse me, Brock Holt hit the first postseason cycle in history, which, yeah, he, which is just unbelievable to think about. Well, when you start thinking about, like, how many postseason games there have been played and stuff like that and the fact that nobody ever hit a cycle in the playoffs, that's, that's pretty crazy to think about. But the fact that you have – a utility, not necessarily an everyday guy like Brock Holt that gets an opportunity to play. It's for the cycle yeah. in in a playoff game. And just to do it in a Red Sox-Yankees kind of matchup in, in the postseason was, was truly incredible to watch. Now, we should say, right, and the cycle is a cycle. The last one was hit off Austin Romine, who was the backup catcher uh, sure. for the Yankees. To be in a situation where a where a non pitcher is pitching one of the last things in a playoff game goes to show you how how badly this game went for New York. Oh yeah, and I think um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and we'll talk about him a little bit more um, later, but uh, this was the first test for Nathan Eovaldi, and he passed with flying colors. We were saying at the time um, nobody. Nobody really wanted to talk about pitching in that game. We wanted to talk about the 16 runs, sure. how good the Red Sox offense looked, Brock Holt cycle. But it started with Eovaldi shutting down that Yankees lineup. And I just wanted to give him credit because if he comes out and lays an egg in that game, it could have gone differently. But he did, he did what he needed to do, and the Red Sox offense certainly did what they needed to do. Yeah, Nathan Eovaldi was was one of the heroes of this entire run, and you need you need special performances like that. And we're going to talk about him, like you said, a little bit later. But he had kind of one of the reasons we had got him um, was for the you know the solidified three four role going into the playoffs, you know. But he also had this propensity to really pitch well against New York, and especially in Yankee Stadium, which is not an easy place to pitch well in. Right, and he had he had faced them twice going down, you know the stretch to in the division race during the regular season. And he had had like two lights out performances against him against the Yankees, but you didn't know specifically with the playoffs, what you were going to get from him. And I mean, he was just masterful. He gave up one run in the bottom of the fourth inning 
And I mean, after I mean, before that, after that, I mean, he just looked like he was in complete control the entire game. Absolutely. And, and like you said, that that doesn't go unnoticed because even though this is sixteen to one and it's extremely lopsided, this game could be could have been completely different if Nathan Evaldi gives up two runs in the first two innings. Right, and and we have to give him a lot of credit for showing up that night. Oh, and yeah. so so the Red Sox took the two one series lead, and we're playing one more in New York. Rick Porcello's on the mound, and um, the Red Sox took a four nothing lead after four innings. So they they were sitting pretty there for a minute. It's looking like they have a good chance to advance here. Yep, and then. Uh, Rick gives up, I believe it was just a solo home run um, in the in the fifth inning, or it was a double, whatever it was. It was one run. Rick pitched fantastically. Um, zero, zero, kind of a bullpen pitching duel. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the bottom of the ninth. Right. I also just want to point out right before, um, so Chris Sale did pitch in this game like we thought he might, but it was out of yes. the bullpen. And yes. he, he got a hold credited for this game. Um, which, as as we know, uh, became important that Alex Cora was willing to use his starters out of the bullpen. So I just wanted to mention that. But, yeah, we get to Kimbrel, and we're sitting at a 4-1 to one game in the bottom of the ninth. It's 4-1, to one, and then the Craig Kimbrel heart attack point two <laughs> comes out to play. Um he comes into the game. He has a three-run lead. He's been one of the best closers in baseball, not only that year, but in years past. And he comes in, and he can't find the strike zone. He's he. I think he walked the first two guys. Yep. There's runners on first and second. He gives up in a ground ball through the hole. The bases are loaded. And then with, I think it's one out, Gary Sanchez stepped into the plate with the bases loaded. And I, I'm – I remember as clear as I am re- retelling this right now, when he hit that ball yeah. to left field, I thought the game was over. I, I, I was, I was, it felt I was, that way. I when when Gary Sanchez made contact on 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 that little terrible hanging curveball, I thought without a doubt that ball was going to be hit so far out of the stadium, and it, it was going to force a game five, and all of the worst things are that play through your mind. And then Ben Attendee settled under it on the warning track. And I think I passed out. Yeah, it, it, it was like that throughout the entire postseason with Craig. He was a heart attack in a bottle. And um, I don't know how he found the, the fortitude inside himself to hold on to some of these games. But he, he ended up being able to close out this game. So even though he had given... Red Sox fans, two heart attacks and two attempts so far. He saved both his chances, and the Red Sox were able to advance. I just wanted to also point out here, um, so much has been said about Mookie Betts struggling in the playoffs last year. Of course, he's the reigning MVP, so we expect big things from him. Sure. Um, the thing the thing with uh, with that is, it's not always your star players that are going to get it done. Like no. we got RBIs, one from JD Martinez, that's to be expected, but Ian Kinsler, Eduardo Nunez and Christian Vasquez had the three other runs driven in. It, it, it's sometimes it's those guys where you think they're an out and then they, they, they find a way to drive in a run. 
those are the guys that can swing series in your favor. Well, that's one of the things that makes this this sport beautiful is like you need star players and you need really good players to carry you through stretches of the season um, and, and get you to certain spots. But when it comes down to, you know, the winning time of the postseason and stuff like that, you need guys like the, you know, Jock Petersons of the world and the Christian Vasquez, you know, Ian Kinsler, stuff like that, where you don't think of them as the first, second, or even maybe fifth option to come up with the game on the line. Yeah. And yet when you need them most, they come out of nowhere with a double down the line to progress an inning or to score a run in it. And it's the difference in a game. I mean, Christian Vasquez's um, solo home run that sneaked over that BS right porch in Yankee Stadium was the winning run in that game. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, I mean, and that's stuff you don't – you can't write. Yeah, it, it was – uh, the stars definitely aligned for the Red Sox in this postseason series, and I don't think there's a better example than this game. Just getting, getting the, the contributions from guys that they needed. The the thing that I that I go back to is you can be the best team in any sport, and you can win a a, a insane amount of you know 108 wins in a season, and yeah. and have all these great things. But if you don't have bounces go your way you don't have unexpected guys show up you you can get bounced in the first round and it, it happens all the time nobody nobody is untouchable that's why you this sounds cliche but that's why you play the games it's because it is not written until it's until it is done and it doesn't matter who's on either side you have to go through and play the game for sure so that that's a heck of a way to kick off that to kick off that postseason i only had wished that that was almost a seven game series because uh, anytime – it's not always the case, but having the Red Sox and Yankees play in the first round kind of just seems a, a little anticlimactic in a little bit of a sense. Right. It's always better when those two face off in the ALCS just because the history there and especially like last year, they both had such great teams. But unfortunately right. for the Yankees, um, standing uh, – they, they – they fell out, and then standing in the Red Sox way now was the reigning champion Houston Astros. This was this was a much anticipated series, and I think when you and I were doing our predictions of who was going to meet in both of the championship series, I think this is the one that we had predicted and we were most looking forward to because these were two of the absolute best teams in baseball just going absolutely head-to-head and rematching their divisional series round from the previous year. Yeah. And and we were looking forward to it, and for the first um, for the first eight innings, it did not disappoint. Of game one, no, we were sitting at um, a two nothing Astros lead early, and then the Red Sox were able to get two runs um, in the fifth inning off of Justin Verlander, who ended up pitching decently, but definitely not as as well as he had in past playoff spots. And then, um, sorry, Houston fans, we're going to skip over the rest of this game. <laughs> uh, the Red Sox ended up losing um, in the ninth inning. There was some bullpen trouble. And then, um, well, I don't want to spoil the way this series ended, but uh, the Astros didn't win another game. Can we say that it was uh, Jackie? Can we say it was Jackie Bradley Jr. and uh, Steve Pierce time? Well, it was definitely Jackie Bradley Jr. time because he was the ALCS MVP. Um, 
this was just an example of a talented player realizing his potential within the span of four games. It it was actually really nice. I'm sure it was fantastic for him, but it was actually really nice to see a guy that you'd been watching for four years show like these incredible glimpses. Like he's his defense is always gonna be elite and that that's never in question. But to see him who has struggled and been kind of, you know, um polar opposites of himself at stretches of the season where sometimes he's just tearing the cover off of the ball and then other times he looks completely lost at the plate to see him lock in to this series into the playoffs and perform yeah. at that level and come up so clutch like in game two the are the three run uh trip i mean three run double uh, with the bases loaded to give the lead and then you know coming up with the home runs in late innings and in, in the games later it's just it was incredible to see a guy who had struggled really for parts of that year be successful uh and and come out yeah I couldn't say it better myself. Um, you and I have talked about Jackie Burley Jr. a lot over the years. Um, oh, yeah. Just such an incredibly talented player. Probably the best defensive center fielder in the game right now. Um, but but the hitting was always the question mark. I mean, I, he had that, that hit streak a couple of years ago where we thought he might have, you know, figured it out completely and then – and then uh, it turns out he hadn't figured it out completely. He was, he's a very up and down offensive player, which is a huge contrast to his defense because defensively there's nobody more consistent in the outfield. Right. And that's one of the things that's so challenging about him is because when he, you know, he's one for his last 27, you're wondering how you can play him, right? Yeah. He, he's costing you runs and he looks so completely lost at the plate. But then you realize you're like, you, this is just a guy you cannot substitute for his defense because the runs that he's not giving you at the plate, he's making up for in the outfield. I mean, he's making plays with his arm and with his glove better than anybody else can do in baseball. And that's why to see him not just be a one trick pony and to come up, not just, not just, you know, getting hits and, you know, moving the line as a nine order, like to, to, to have season defining, like series changing hits. Yeah. Was, was so special to watch. Cause you're thinking to yourself, and this is, this is the best part of it is, the year prior, you're having guys like Marwin Gonzalez and Gary Gurriel kill you, kill the Red Sox in the playoffs. It's not Alex Bregman. It's not Jose Altuve. And you're wondering what the hell is going on? Like, how is Yuri Gurriel hitting, you know, triples into the right field corner with the bases loaded to just kill your team? Right. Yeah. It's, it, it seems like there's always there, – every team has, or at least you would hope, every team has, you know, one or two of these guys where – they aren't your best player, but they can swing a series. I guess you could call him an X factor. And, and Jackie Bradley Jr. was the X factor of this series. Of course, he had the, the grand slam in game three. Yep. And even though it was only a 2-1 series lead at the time, I think we started to feel the needle move all the way in the Red Sox direction after that grand slam. Yeah, the once he hit the grand slam in in the eighth inning, I mean, the it's a I believe it was a three to two ball game. Yeah, three to two ball game going into that eighth inning, and then you get the Jackie Bradley Jr. grand slam in the eighth to really just bust it wide open. Yeah, and and you get to avoid thank God the Craig Kimbrell heart attack uh, for another day. But seeing, I mean, he didn't. I remember that vividly. He hit 
when he hit the ball, he didn't just hit it. He, I think he put a crater dent into the back wall of the indoor stadium. <laughs> he certainly in, did. In Minute Maid. And it just like seeing that ball, how hard he hit it, and seeing him come around the bases, just like you just kind of got this feeling you're like, we're just not going to be beat. Like if Jackie Bradley Jr. is hitting grand slams, it's going to be really hard to beat this team. And I just want to say once more, we're teasing it a lot. We're going to talk about Nathan Eovaldi coming up. But uh, another just outstanding game from him. Six innings, two runs allowed. Um, the this guy, is another game he won, by the, the way. Right. This this was Nathan Eovaldi also being an X-Factor. But at the time, it was under the radar because both of his wins came in what ended up being blowout wins. So you're not going to sit there and go, oh, my pitcher won this game for me. But – um, he was a huge part in in the Red Sox run up until this point. And, you know, you've got to be sitting there thinking, oh, my God, Nathan Eovaldi has given me all he's got. That's not true. He had more. He had more to give. No, he, he certainly did. And like you said, the offense overshadowed him. But uh, going, going into the World Series, and we're going to talk about it, you're going to see just how special – Nathan Eovaldi, not only is as a pitcher, but like as a person. Um, but we'll get into that in game three when we get there in a second. The the thing that I want to make mention of in game four is one of like the most incredible things happened in that game that I had never seen before. Um, Rick Porcello is pitching. He, you know, is kind of laboring a little bit. This is kind of a more offensive oriented game. Houston um, gives up two in the in the top of the first Rick gives him back by the third inning. But Mookie Betts does something that I've never seen before. Yeah. Which is where he goes in uh, – Jose Altuve with two runners on, hits a ball at, that should be out of the ballpark, and Mookie Betts makes an incredible play to get a glove on the ball, and his glove is closed by one of the by, – by a Houston fan in the, in the outfield. And Joe West, who, if you're not familiar – is absolutely adores the Red Sox and always has. He he was the crew chief on the air on the Alex Rodriguez um, swatted ball yep. in 2004. He made that call. Um, Which way? Let's say it was the right call. It was. I don't care if you're a Yankee fan or not. It was the right call, and A Rod was in the wrong in that situation. Nick, does anybody run like that? Does anybody make <laughs> swipe down motions on the third step? Anytime I need a laugh, I just play that clip. The best is the hands on the head. Yeah. Complete, complete dumbfounded, what? like shock at second base. Like, what do you mean? I, how could I? I was the just ball? running. I was just running. <laughs> I was just running. That's my stride. I, I, I slap my hands out when I run. Every, every fifth step, I swap my left hand down aggressively. That's, that's how I run. So <laughs> going back, Mookie Betts um, makes, makes this play eight. It keeps the Red Sox in the game and gives them a chance to win. But it, it's so interesting how, and in just a, just in a microcosm in one play, a, an MVP who isn't playing well offensively still finds a way to make a major impact on a game like that. Right. Yeah. And um, this was a semi-controversial play at the time. Um, but again, I want to. I'll say the same thing I said about. Alex Rodriguez, it was the correct call. Uh, Astros fans, I don't know if you're holding on to any any hatred in your heart still. If you are, uh, stop it because it was the right call and 
the bottom line is the Red Sox were the better team for those five games. I Listen, I, I know I'm biased, but I agree with you. And this was, once again, Jackie Riley Jr. with the solo home run in the eighth inning to uh, to give the lead. To get to get the lead back was, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, this was this was a series where the Red Sox needed somebody besides Mookie Betts to show up offensively, and right. a lot a lot of guys did their part. JD Martinez, Steve Pierce, uh, Eduardo Nunez, um, they they all had their moments, but nobody had more big moments than Jackie Bradley Jr. Right. So that that was a shakeup of, and then Game Five was just the kind of the David Price coming out party. Oh, for sure, it was the get on my back, short and I mean short rest. Um, remember, he was warming up and pitching in the bullpen Game Four to do the Alex Cora, have my starter come in and be the bridge gap in the eighth inning to Craig Kimbrell, and he came in and pitched in Game Five, and it was electric it was seven innings of one run ball um just absolute dominance and it, and it was something for all of the david price doubters to to some to absorb to see that he pitched a complete like great game in the playoffs and something i'm sure that got the monkey off of his back yeah absolutely i mean um this is another thing like you were talking about moments ago david price his velocity um is not in the upper 90s like it used to be and we've seen him shift into more of a ground ball pitcher, but that was not the case in this game. In this game, he was missing bats like it was his job, which I suppose it is. He, <laughs> he struck out nine, walked nobody, only gave up the three hits. This was, without a doubt, David Price's best postseason pitching appearance. And I believe this was the first game he ever got the win for as a starter. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, I, I definitely – this was the first game as a starter, not coming in as a relief pitcher, not coming in in any weird situation. This is his, this was his first postseason win as a starter. Right, and, and yeah. it, it, it went a long way, not only for the Red Sox to, to go and win the World Series like they did, but just for him personally because I don't care who you are. If, if you're as good as he is and you've had things happen in the playoffs like that, it's going to be on your mind, and – to be able to to move past that in the best way in the biggest game of your life, that's got to feel good. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure it meant the world to him, and I know I know how much it meant to him, and I know that everybody in that Red Sox clubhouse and Alex Cora spoke to it. He's like, we knew that he was capable of doing this, and that he was capable of giving this type of performance, and it was just a matter of when it was going to happen. Right. Yeah, so, and then um, another thing I wanted to mention before we get into the World Series, yeah. uh, you look up and you've had about 45 heart attacks as a Red Sox fan, <laughs> and, you, and you look up and Craig Kimbrell saved five games already. I mean, uh, yeah. they were all, as far as I remember, they were all easy ones, right? Well, that's because that's because you don't remember correctly. <laughs> no, they they were not. They were all terrifying. I think the only easy one actually was the game five against um, Houston to shut them out. It was a clean ending actually, and that was sort of like a oh thank God because Craig had had such struggles in the other four saves, and that was the other thing is you go back and look at he didn't blow one save throughout the playoffs, and if you're just looking at the stats, you're like oh Craig Craig you know pitched fine. 
But if you're watching those games and you were invested in those games, you were, you know, having to breathe out of a bag when right. he was coming out to the plate. Um, the that other, being the, said, that being said, somebody sign him already. Come on. Yes. Yeah, let's get going on that. It's, and then enough is enough. Go ahead. The other, the other important thing, and this is probably just for me and for Rafael Devers, but Devers hit the uh, hit the home run off of uh, the three run home run off of Justin Verlander to knock him out of the game in the top right. of the sixth inning. We have kind of talked about it before. There are young players that, regardless of the struggles, you know, defensively or offensively that you see early in careers, they show these little spots of just having that it factor yeah and this was another example of Rafael Devers showing that I mean you have um a total pitchers duel back and forth of David Price and Justin Berliner going tit for tat and then the 22 the 20 year old rookie who was turning 21 a week later hits a three-run home run off of a Cy Young generational pitcher uh to advance their team to the World Series that was pretty special yeah and um Listen, I'll say you more than anybody in the Red Sox fandom loves Raphael Devers. I do. And, um, but it wasn't the, – the, there was a reason to love him after his postseason run because the Red Sox needed him to step up and get the job done, and he did it. No, no There's no question. And I, I'm one of those people – listen, Red Sox Nation, I know he makes errors. I, I know I know that sometimes you get frustrated with it. I'm telling you, as sure as I can see it, this kid is going to be special, and there has to be patience involved. He is a baby. He's a child, and he looks like a child. Right. You need to, There needs to be some time. And the fact that we got like this performance out of him in the postseason, and he had a couple big hits in the World Series as well, Like, really, really tells you something about him and that there has to be patience with – with young players. We, I think not to get all big, but I think we live in this generation where we expect instant gratification with, with guys when they come up, especially with our teams and there's not a lot of patience involved and you got to take the good with the bad. So I think that's with any team. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair point. Um, So let's move on to the world series game, game one. Personally, I know um, I know Chris Sale didn't have a great game, and it was really the Red Sox bullpen that got the job done. But for me, this is the Andrew Benintendi game. Well, it's funny you said because that's the one thing we, we, we slightly missed. We, we should mention his game-winning catch um, in game four during oh, one yeah. of the other – Craig Kimbrell. That, that, that catch was the diving catch in the outfield to, to win the game and, and save Craig Kimbrell's career was uh was incredible <laughs> the only the only reason that craig is definitely not going to play i mean would definitely not play baseball in 2019 is if andrew benatendi doesn't catch that ball well we've got a whole new series if he doesn't catch that ball it's <laughs> yeah. lucky lucky the red sox have three gold glove outfielders because otherwise uh things might have gone a little differently yeah so i just i want to make sure we that that's mentioned but back to what you're saying the andrew benatendi game game one yeah, this was four for five. Yep. Uh, he scored three runs, drove in one. And um, looking at baseball reference here, he had the highest win probability added of any offensive player in this game. And I think yeah. it's fair to say uh, we, we're not going to disagree with that number. And um, he was just outstanding. When he's going up against, like, one of the generational best lefties of – 
of this generation in Clayton Kershaw. I mean, he's not he's not facing some some schmuck. I mean, he, you're talking about Cy Young winning Clayton Kershaw lefty on lefty type matchup, and Andrew Benintendi's four for five. Yeah, and and speaking of Kershaw, uh, we've talked about David Price and and his playoff struggles in the past. We have to talk about Clayton Kershaw's playoff struggles as well because even though in the previous season it had seemed like he had figured it out to a degree, mm-hmm. he did not show up to play in this game. He went no. only four innings, gave him five runs. He walked three, which is not consistent with who he is because when Clayton Kershaw is on his game, he doesn't walk guys. And so that right there, no, yeah, doesn't. that right there is definitely uh, a red flag. But it also speaks to the depth of the Red Sox lineup. They they were all tough outs one through nine, and they were willing to take the walks when they were there. No question. Um, I th- I think there was a good game plan in place to face Clayton Kershaw, and like you said, he's had his struggles. But I think. Um, Going into that game, just getting the early two runs in the bottom of the first inning on the board immediately and having Chris Sale kind of settle yeah. in, even though there was the the solo home run to Matt, to Matt Kemp uh, in the second inning, it was good to see him kind of settle into uh, the game. The, the thing that I will say, though, and that this was the most interesting thing to me, is this game was so back and forth for so long, but once again, you have a guy, and Eduardo Nunez, not a guy you think you know is going to – be a be a changing be be the you know the the swinging tide in a in a world series game comes up in a pinch hit in the bottom of the seventh inning. oh for sure yeah um eduardo nunez what more can we say i mean this is a guy who plays through injuries you can play him pretty much anywhere in the infield he doesn't complain we liked the pickup at the time a couple years ago when they added him um Mm-hmm. And, you know, credit to Dave Dombrowski because when you bring guys in like that, you hope that at a certain point they will help you win games that matter. And I don't think I don't think no any games matter more than World Series games. So uh, good on Dave Dombrowski, good on Eduardo Nunez for stepping up and just really taking advantage of an opportunity because, you know, he very easily – could have not came into that game. I mean, Rafael Devers had been playing well, but I also want to give credit to Alex Cora, uh, a guy who pushed the right buttons at every turn last season, proved yep. in his – by the way, uh, Alex Cora is not a 10-year manager. That was his first one. Just – That was just the num- first Year one. number one. So um, to, to have the ability to – not not only rely on statistics and numbers and you know building the right lineup and knowing when to get pitchers, just proving that he has a nice feel for the game. He 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 felt that Eduardo Nunez was the spot, was the guy to go there in that spot, and uh, the rest is as they say history. Yeah the. The the Alex Cora crystal ball really came out to play once again, and he had made these calls all year. But to pinch hit uh, Nunez in that spot with the bases uh, with with runners on first and second um, in a in a game defining place, and to have him hit that home run was it, it's it's just incredible. And like we've said, those are the type of things that you need to have go your way to win a World Series. So 
that that was truly special. And then going off of this again, we now get another David Price masterpiece in yep, game two. Another six innings, only gave up two runs, struck out five. Um, what more can we say except David Price figured it out and he was a huge reason why the Red Sox were able to win the World Series. But another thing worth pointing out here, um, and this is something Alex Cora did throughout the postseason, Nathan Eovaldi coming in in the eighth and getting the job done. Um, let's just go right to it. Let's We've teased it for long enough. The Red Sox won the first yep. two games, so they're up 2 nothing in the series. And uh, these weren't laughers. These were, you know, competitive games. But um, oh, yeah. it was – dangerous for the Dodgers they were letting the the games the series slip away from them and then we come to game three in Los Angeles and none other none other excuse me than Rick Porcello on the mound he went four and two thirds and um he he wasn't great but he wasn't bad but this was this was the infamous um, eighteen inning game. So just walk me through what your feelings were in this game when we're looking at basically just just one of the all time marathon baseball games in the playoffs. Yeah. So <laughs> watching this game for almost eight innings, I'm wondering where the hell our offense is. Um, we're not hitting and we haven't been able to score run. And granted, this was a pitcher's duel and the only run was scored until the eighth inning was, uh, in the bottom of the third, the angel, I mean, the, uh, Los Angeles got a run. Uh, and then you have Jackie Bradley Jr. I'm thinking, Oh my God, the Red Sox are going to get shut out in their first game on the West coast and not even score a run. And Jackie Bradley Jr. Once again, comes out of nowhere and hits a absolute moonshot into the right field bleachers. Uh, in Dodger Stadium to 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 prolong this game and trust me, prolong it did. Right, and uh, <laughs> Walker Bueller for the Dodgers um, was spectacular. Oh, you, you couldn't have asked for more. Seven innings, seven strikeouts, no walks, only two hits, no runs allowed. I repeat, no runs allowed. Um, Nothing. If you're the Dodgers, no matter what happened later in that game, uh, as the rest of the eleven innings unfolded. You have to win that game because Walker Bueller just stepped up and basically said, I'm not letting this series end in four games. No, oh, there's there's absolutely no question. And he he pitched a dominant performance and he deserved to win. And like I said, a crazy unlikely thing happened and Kenley Jansen, who had been dealing with um some heart some heart issues, you know, had to sit out for part of the year, was really kind of scary found his way back, but had a kind of an up and down season. And he gave up in his, he blew his first save opportunity to Jackie Bradley Jr. With that home run in the eighth inning, which was as shocking as they come for how dominant he's right. been not only in the regular season in his career, but also the postseason. I mean, he's been really, really good and definitely did not see that in the cards, but this game went all the way until the 13th inning without a run. And, with without going into too much detail, a couple fluky plays really on both sides, and once again you're tied at thirteen. I mean you're tied at two all at the thirteenth inning, and then Nathan Evaldi did something 
I don't think will be probably seen again, or at least not for a long, long time. And and kind of heroic. This was the, in a lot of ways, Nathan Evaldi was the heart of this of this pitching staff and maybe of the entire team. Uh, remember, he had pitched in Game Two, and yep. I believe he was scheduled to go for Game Four, but it got down to the point where Alex Cora handed Nathan Eovaldi the ball and he basically said, this game is yours until it's over. And it ended up going six long innings with Nathan Eovaldi giving everything he had. And uh, you're not going to see, like you said, you're not going to see this ever again, maybe because in 18 inning game, Nathan Eovaldi pitched a third of it out of the bullpen. The, the thing that was so special about this and it was actually very emotional is that there's this guy who who was giving up his spot basically to to pitch in to pitch later in this game, not as a starter, putting his ego away and giving you just everything he has. This guy has had two Tommy John surgeries. Yeah. He, you know, you're putting a tremendous amount of wear and tear on his arm and after inning after inning without us being able to score a run. Every time he put his hat on, ran out to the pitcher's mound, and gave everything that he had in his body to win that game. And he did not lose this game for the Red Sox. When when Max Muncy finally hit the home run to to walk off the 18th inning marathon, Nathan Evaldi was applauded in the dugout and in the locker room after the game in a standing ovation. Now you think about the fact of losing an 18th inning game in the World Series could could kill any oh, yeah. team. It could be crushing. But instead, they go in. I mean, you've got Alex Cora quoted said he had like Rick Porcello and other t- and other pitchers and other teammates had tears in their eyes, giving Nathan Eovaldi a standing ovation after losing a World Series game on a walk. Yeah, this was this was one of my personal top five moments um, of the postseason run, just because. Yeah, like you said, it, it was a loss. He ended up getting a loss, but. If there if there was ever a, a loss that he no that the pitcher didn't deserve it was this one. He threw ninety seven pitches no out of the bullpen. Um, he pitched six six innings of one run ball. You're gonna win games when you pitch like that as a starter. He did it as a reliever oh, yeah. just two days after pitching in the eighth inning in a win. So our hats are off to you, Mister Eovaldi. And another thing before we move on. Um, Nathan Eovaldi was a pending free agent and he had made himself some money after the way he had pitched prior to this in the, in the postseason run. N- nobody would oh, yeah. have faulted him if he said, you know, I can only go two innings or I, I can only go one inning or whatever. Or, I, I'm waiting until game four. You got to protect yourself in situations like that. We're talking about the guy's livelihood, but he put that aside too for, for the team and I respect them a lot for doing that. Oh, it, it, it was a heroic moment. And like you said, he, this is a guy coming off of two Tommy John surgeries. He could have absolutely been like, listen, I can only give you at most two innings and save me up for later in the series. And he didn't. He went in and put his head down and gave his team everything he got and pretty much sacrificed himself for the betterment of the pitching staff in the bullpen, which obviously proved to be crucial in the next two games and having like guys like Eduardo Rodriguez and the bullpen be rested enough to win. Right. Games. As, as we know from game of Thrones, only death may pay for life. 
And That's right. Nathan Eovaldi didn't die. I want to be clear on that. But uh, he's, he's still, still alive. alive. He's, he's well, and he's going to start pitching well soon. But um, <laughs> his his metaphorical death was a huge reason the, the Red Sox were able to live on and, um, spoiler alert, end up winning the next two games to become champions. Yeah, the it, it was it was truly like, it, and I, I'll say it, it, it. Sports, sports can be emotional in a lot of ways, but like never in my life did I ever think like I would be as moved as seeing a guy just go out and pitch scoreless innings in that type of in that type of setting, and then seeing the effect that it had on that entire team was was one of the most incredible. Nobody hit a home run, nobody made a diving play. It was just a guy just continually going out there with his head with his head down just to do his job for the betterment of his team, regardless of the outcome. And it was like, it, it was, it was incredible. And um, like I said, we, we wish the very best for Nathan Eovaldi and he's going to find, he's going to start finding the strike zone soon. Um, so one more thing we, we definitely got to talk about is the MVP of this series, Steve Pierce, the yep. show he put on offensively. Um, talking about game four, the Red Sox won nine to six. And this was a game where Steve Pierce drove in four runs and had the highest win probability added of any batter at any point for the Red Sox in their entire postseason run in this game. Just outstanding. It, this was a, uh, this was another example of exactly what I'm talking about. Notice how through this World Series conversation and through most of the playoffs, we have not really mentioned the names of, of J.D. Martinez and Mookie Betts. The, those weren't the guys that hit the, you know, the, the, the home runs in the eighth and ninth inning or drove in the runs to save, to save the Red Sox. It was Steve Pierce. It was Eduardo Nunez. It was Jackie Bradley Jr. And Steve Pierce, who has played for all five American League East teams, saved all of his good juju up for the Red yes, Sox. He and I appreciate it. Yes, he it. certainly and did. And I appreciate it. Um, yeah, he, this, he grew up as a Red Sox fan. And he yeah, there, there was a certain sentimental, um, sentimental aspect of this run for him, playing for his favorite team as a kid, um, getting him midseason – you only dream of additions like that midseason. You hope that the guy you trade for is the one that can swing a World Series, and that's exactly what Steve Pierce did. He he saved all of his uh, he saved all of his home runs for and in his runs driven in and big hits for the American League Championship Series and the World Series. And God knows, myself and uh, the uh, the other Red Sox fans around the country really do appreciate oh, it. Oh, for sure. I mean. If you look at it, the Red Sox scored 14 runs over the final two games of the series. Steve Pierce drove in half of them. So, yeah, our, our, our <laughs> yeah. guys aren't the end-all, be-all. Uh, but it, it, there's something to be said when a guy drives in half your runs uh, en route to two straight victories to win a World Series. This guy was the guy for the Red Sox. It was It was phenomenal to watch, and that's – that's one of the things I go back to is never in my life, like when I would see him come up, you know, when he played against Toronto. I mean, when he played for Toronto or the Orioles, I was like, oh, that guy can hit. You know, he's a pretty good, you know, like platoon guy to have. Never in my life seeing him play for any of the other four teams in the AL East did I ever think to myself, oh, that guy's a, that guy's a World Series MVP. Right. And one more. Like that guy's. Sorry. Uh, 
No, that's a good point. I just want to say one more note on game four. Uh, the Dodgers should have won this game. They were winning by four after six innings. Um, oh, yeah. you got to win that game 100% of the time, you know. Uh, but Steve Pierce and the Red Sox decided that that was not true. <laughs> and uh, they, the Red Sox were able to score all nine runs in the seventh inning or later in that game. Just you're not going to find resilience like that every night. But that night, the Red Sox had it. Well, what there was, I can actually explain that. What there was is because of the time delays um, from, like, the wet East Coast to the West Coast and the, the time changes and stuff like that, the Red Sox were just slightly delayed. Right. Um, but but once, once Alex Corr was like, hey, guys, it's the seventh inning. We might need to, you know, score a couple runs. Everybody was like, okay, my bad. <laughs> it's a little jet lag. Like, we're sorry. We're, we're, we're just a little tired. We're on it, though. Don't worry, AC. We got you. Yeah. That, well, you know what? That makes sense. That, that's the explanation. <laughs> So moving on, That's moving it. on to the to the what would be the World Series winning game for the Red Sox, um, they won this game five to one. This was a game where David Price once again was outstanding. Seven innings of one run ball, he struck out five. Um, three straight shutdown performances from him. He was sneakily oh, yeah. he was the the low key MVP of the run for the Red Sox, what he was able to do. But I, uh, we've talked about Steve Pierce and what he did uh, in this game as well as the previous game. But I also wanted to talk about one of my personal favorite moments was watching Chris, Chris uh. Sale on the mound striking out the side to win the World Series. Um, Chris Sale, as we talked about a little bit, he had had an injury-plagued season – he still ended up being mm-hmm. one of the best pitchers in the American League, if you go by wins above replacement. But um, he was he was having trouble coming back from his injuries, and he wasn't able to really contribute as much as you would think as a starter. So to see him on the mound closing out a World Series was pretty special. Uh, we know all he cares about is winning, and he was a big part of it on that day. Like I said, striking out the side. Not an easy thing to do, especially in the last inning of a World Series. I don't think I don't think there's any more poetic justice than having Manny Machado be the last out of uh, of the of the World Series. If you like Manny Machado, that's fine. You're entitled to that. I do not. Um, and and from that, it was kind of sweet justice, seeing as he was the one that pleaded and went up high on Dustin Pedroia a year and a half ago to see him be the final out of the world series against Chris sale. And I think his body literally made the shape of a K yeah. on his strikeout. It swing. did. If, if you haven't seen this, look it up. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah. Uh, Chris sale, he saved it all up for those three strikeouts. And at the end of it, the Red Sox were crowned world series champions. Um, is there any anything else you want to cover on this run? I think we did a good job going over the highlights of this. It, it's a team to remember. 108 regular season wins. They only lost to each opponent once in the playoffs. They uh, right. they they were just as good a team as you will see in your lifetime. The only thing I do want to say, and I I want to make this as clear as possible, is. To win a World Series, right, and to win any championship, and I mentioned this before, is you can have the MVP on your team. You can have a guy that won the Phantom Triple Crown. You can have 
a guy that should have won the, the Cy Young three times over from now. But if you don't have, you know, your platoon guys step up in each stage of every series, like the Brock Holtz, the Eduardo Nunez's, the Rafael Devers, the Steve Pierce's of the world, you can't win a championship. It's just too hard. You ha- It has to be a lot of things going right. And that's one of the things that makes not only baseball, but like championship runs so special is it's, it's not like the NBA where, you know, because you have Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, you're just going to win it all. Right. That's, that's one of the things that makes baseball beautiful is it is a collective. Not one guy can carry an entire team to a championship. And, th- and that's it, even with the Red Sox as dominant they were, they only lost one game per series. Like you said, it doesn't matter if Steve Pierce doesn't get traded to the Red Sox um, at the deadline. Right. No, that, that's a good point. It's, it's the, the unsung heroes sometimes instead of the, the MVPs and the all-stars. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think we did a good job covering it. Uh, The reason we're celebrating this Red Sox team right now is because uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday night earlier today, the Red Sox got their rings. So we just wanted to take a moment to remember the champions and like I said, one of the best runs you're going to see in your lifetime. So um, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the weekend brawl in Pittsburgh between Yasiel Puig and the entire, uh, entire Pittsburgh Pirates team. Uh, We're going (laughs) to, we're going to go over a little bit about Mike Trout and Christian Yelich. The Brewers and Angels are playing right now. And there's uh, a couple of former MVPs going at it. And then we're going to close talking about a couple more NLE and uh, National League storylines like Cody Bellinger and then the Nats and Cubs bullpens and an improbable comeback by the Nationals today against Bryce oh, Harper yeah. and the Phillies. Yeah, so stick yes, around. Sir. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, we are back and we are ready to talk about one of our favorite players, Yasiel Puig. The uh, the Puig, your friend, is still alive and well, just not in Pittsburgh. No, not in P- Puig is not your friend in Pittsburgh. Puig is Puig is not your friend in Pittsburgh. Puig is your friend in other places, but Puig is not your friend in Pittsburgh, and he doesn't want to be your friend in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I would say he's okay with that. Uh, knowing the kind of knowing the kind of guy he is, he's fine with not being uh, friends with uh, the members of the Pittsburgh Pirates. So, to give you a little bit of background of what we're what we're talking about, uh, there was a bench clearing brawl in Pittsburgh over the weekend, and mm-hmm. uh, we're referencing the now infamous photo of Yasiel Puig trying to fight the entire Pittsburgh Pirates team. So basically, what happened was uh, Derek Dietrich, who I know from his Marlins days, hit a home run off of Chris Archer of the Pirates, and Chris Archer didn't really like that. No, he. Uh... Well, let's let's just say he did hit that ball to the moon. Yeah, it, it it was well hit. It wasn't it wasn't a can of corn. He got that one. The ball was hit to the moon, and um, Derek Dietrich uh, admired it, to say the least. He kind of stood there, took a selfie, ate some popcorn. He liked he liked it. He liked his home run. What more can we say? Uh, Maybe he saw the "Let the Kids Play" you know ad running running twenty four seven on MLB TV um, and and took that to heart. Um, I think that's said, what it is. 
I, I think that's what it was. He's, you know, it's let the kids play the unwritten rules of baseball, how the old timers did it. This is how we're doing it now. Listen, fine, Derek, I get it. You hit the ball in the moon, you get to look out a little bit. The only thing is, if you're going to do that, there's going to be some repercussion. Yeah, and we don't see this too much in the game nowadays. Mm-hmm. I know um, our favorite old men broadcasters will talk about the good old days when guys were getting hit in the head left and right. Yep. And, uh, let, let's just be thankful that's not the case anymore. But, but yeah, like you said, when, when a guy admires his home run that much, you're opening yourself up to retribution. And that's sure. exactly – even though Chris Archer denies it, he – so Derek Dietrich is a left-handed batter, and his next time up, Chris Archer missed with a fastball to the left of the batter by about five feet. And you can say the ball got away from you. You're you're an MLB pitcher. The ball didn't get away from you. You were trying to hit him. He he was trying to hit him so badly he threw the ball behind him. Yeah, that and... <laughs> that's the thing. Derek Dietrich and Yasiel Puig and everybody were pissed, but uh, Derek Dietrich should be thankful that one didn't hit him because if that gets him in a bad spot, we're talking about injuries and everything like that. So so Derek, be thankful the ball didn't hit you. The one thing I will say is for what had happened, there were words between the catcher and and Derek Dietrich as he came home to score his home run that he hit. Here's all I'm saying is thrown behind him so clearly. As as an umpire, I get that you want to do the whole, like, you know, not overreact, like you get a warning, you get a warning, don't do that stuff again. Sure. When you try to hit a guy that badly and you know things are going to come up, this, just throw Chris Archer out of the game. Yeah, he's like, just got to be ejected right away, no questions asked, and then you avoid the brawl. Right, because then you avoid the brawl. Because what ends up happening is the managers will get ejected. That's all fine and, ha- and handled. But what you've done is you've, you've already set the warning. And what Chris Archer did is I don't blame him for wanting to, to hit Derek Dietrich. I think that's fine. That's kind of the way – I get it. It's, it's, those are the unwritten rules. But if you're gonna hit, if you're gonna miss so badly that you literally throw a foot behind him, you're gonna have to go. Yeah, and the fact that he only got a warning is kind of funny, just <laughs> in and of itself. But like, yeah, go ahead. You no, know, it's just kind of like it's like, hey, Archer, just try not to lose your fastball again. Like I have to give a warning because I have to, but you know, try to try to locate. It's like no, he tried to throw him. He tried <laughs> to hit him. He tried to kill him. He tried to kill him. There was attempted murder on the field, and uh, after the warning by the umpire, the Reds manager, David Bell, was livid. And so he comes rushing out onto the field, arguing the fact that Chris Archer should be ejected, and that's when the brawl really started to take off. Let's be be clear. Mr. Bell is not a fool, okay? He knows that his player stood there for a half an hour and admired his Bob Ross painting of a home run. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like he knows what he did well but he hold on hold pre- on that home run was not a happy little accident <laughs> no that thing was a disaster it was a freaking <laughs> nuclear bomb sent out in the pittsburgh bay <laughs> but having said that he has to go protect his player he knows that his player did that he was probably going to get thrown out or something i get it but the the part that gives him grounds to be upset is the fact that it just wasn't an immediate ejection i mean you can't miss that badly no, you you have to you have to throw him out of the game. As an umpire, do your job, okay? Just because just you're your throwing job. guys out of the game for looking at you funny when you call a bad strike three, 
but you won't throw guys out of the game when when they miss their target by 15 feet. So (laughs) in the future, if you're a home plate umpire and you're listening to this, first of all, thank you for listening. And second of all, (laughs) do your job. Just do your job. So one of the one of the things that I love in every brawl and we got it in this one, um, the trek from the bullpen to the fight. uh, Yeah, it's we're calling the cavalry in, you know, they're coming in. They may not make it in time, but they have to make that run. It's it's the typical like and the best part is is you've always got in the bullpen, you've always got the really in shape crazy coming sprinting in to try to handle things himself from the outfield and it takes him like five seconds to get there. And then yeah. you've got kind of everybody else kind of meandering back doing like the light jog. And then 10 minutes later after everything's been settled and Yasiel Puig is on his like fourth runaround to try to tackle half of the Pittsburgh uh, lineup, you've got like the bench. I mean, you've got like the, the bullpen coaches from either side just walking down 10 minutes later yeah. to, to kind of see what see what's what. Well, what it is is, you know, the bullpen coaches, if we're thinking about this as some kind of battle, they're not the the frontline soldiers. They're the generals of the whole thing. So they don't they don't want to get involved in the fight. They're directing the fight. Right. Exactly. It's 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 the from behind the field kind of, you know, shout some things out. Right. <laughs> so the bull, the bullpen makes their trek in and in a lot of cases the bullpen r- arrives too late oh, to yeah. to be a part of things, but Yasiel Puig made sure that wasn't the case because after after everything had started to die down, uh, and again, if you haven't seen this picture, uh, you you gotta find it. <laughs> Yasiel Puig versus the <laughs> Pittsburgh Pirates. It's just um, so funny. So the fight had already been dying down, but Puig took it upon himself <laughs> to be a one man army and try to teach some guys a lesson for throwing at his friend Derek Dietrich. It was almost like. Every time, like, it seemed like it was settled. Like, the announcers are like, oh, it seems like cooler heads have prevailed. You know what I mean? And, like, and like both sides are kind of separating themselves. Yasiel Puig was reminded that he was just traded from the Dodgers to the Reds. And it just made him so pissed off that he just wanted to go fight anybody he could find. And he was like, it's your fault I'm not in Los Angeles anymore. And he goes after, like, Chris Archer and the, the entire Pittsburgh team. And then they separate again. And then Yasiel Puig was reminded that he got sent down to AAA because and then he runs Echo over there and tries to take it out on somebody. Right. So, um, so we'll we'll save you the gory details. What ends up happening is there are five ejections. Mm-hmm. Uh, Puig, of course, was ejected. Reds manager David Bell was ejected, and then three Pittsburgh relief pitchers were ejected: Felipe Vasquez, Amir Garrett, and Keone Kella. And um, Keone, if I'm not saying your name right, it means you're not a good enough player yet. So. <laughs> Get better, and then we'll learn your name correctly. Uh, Felipe Vasquez, I do know because I know him from when he was Felipe Rivero with the Nationals. Uh, great pitcher, definitely has a temper. Everyday Felipe needs moments like this to revitalize his career. Well, I mean, he's been he's been you know he's had success in Pittsburgh, but oh, yeah. um, he he lives for stuff like this where the adrenaline is high and he can make something happen. Everyday Felipe will will purposely hit two batters in the ankles <laughs> in a, in a one run game just to make it suspenseful enough for him to have interest. I I do miss him despite everything. <laughs> um, but so so the suspensions came out today. 
Chris Archer got the, the biggest suspension of five games. Puig got two, and Reds manager David Bell got a one-game suspension. My first question to you is, is five games too many for Chris Archer, or well, is it the right amount or not enough? This is like one of the rarest situations where I think if he had actually hit him, it would have been less games. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a good point because I don't know if the brawl goes as far if he does hit him. Well, because like you hit him and like you hit him in the in the back of the butt or wherever it is, and it just kind of handled, and like you get warnings and stuff like that. There's probably reciprocation, whatever it may be, but it doesn't escalate to this. He threw five feet behind Derek Dietrich, and like it was like it, it was like. Like we said, it was like you were trying to kill him, but yeah, you didn't hit anything. Was not a day to remember for Chris Archer's command. I mean, he's missing locations, giving up home runs, and he can't even hit a guy correctly. So uh, he'll he'll get five games to think about it and try to try to work on some stuff here. Um, I think I agree. The, I I think he he would have got less if he actually did hit him. The the five games is though it's appropriate because it's a start for him. Yeah, it's just one turn through the rotation. So it's basically a one-game suspension. Right. So that, that's kind of what makes it okay um, and, and why. I think Yasiel Puig probably got the worst end of the stick because his, was his two or three? He got the two-game suspension. Yeah, because that's, that's two actual games that he would be starting in and playing. But when you go back for, you know, fifth, sixth, and seventh and treat a, treat a major league <laughs> baseball brawl like Thanksgiving, it's, it's kind of it's, yeah, kind going to get this. Put down your fork, Yasiel. You're full. It's okay. It's done. <laughs> You've like, had we put, enough. We put the Tupperware away. Like, it's, we ate five hours ago. We're done. So, um, that's a good point. My next question before we move on is, was this brawl justified? So, I think it's safe to say, yeah, the there was fault on both sides with watching the home run and throwing behind the guy. But I think it's safe to say the Reds started the brawl and the Pirates answered the call. What should this have happened, or should should cooler heads have prevailed? I I think it's I think this was going to happen. I mean, you've got two teams in the division that are playing each other a lot to start the season. You know, you've got frustrations, and both teams I'm sure wish that they were playing better. Uh, and you just you get a couple of young guys like Yasiel Puig in the mix, Derek Dietrich, that are you know kind of disruptors staring at home runs for a while coming in wanting to you know escalate things have tempers and, and things like that so I think that this was kind of inevitable regardless of if it should or should not have happened I right. think it was I think it was just going to I think it was just you know uh, a mixture of just a lot of young testosterone on the field and just ready to ready to go and probably a little bit of like early season frustration I think also probably played a little bit of a hand yeah I think that's fair I think um, brawls have their place in the game as long as guys aren't hurting each other. It's it's totally fine. You know, yeah, it's not as fun when it's just hold me back, hold me back. But I think it's better, uh, better overall. You get to, you know, like you said, express your frustration. But also, I mean, we've seen brawls where guys do get hurt. Um, One that I'm thinking about, a Nationals-Giants brawl a couple years ago, Michael Morse, effectively uh, his career was over after getting – hit by one of his own teammates, you know, friendly fire, and he was never able to recover from that. So you never want to see a guy get hurt in a brawl. But, yeah, I think I think it was fine. Um, going forward, we got to keep an eye on the Pirates because whenever there are people 
in fights or throwing at other players. If you look at which team it was, it's usually Pittsburgh. So um, Pittsburgh, take a chill pill, okay? It's you're gonna give up home runs. It's not a big deal. This needs to stop. So the next thing we want to talk about is Mitra and Christian Yelich. Their teams are playing right now. The Angels and Brewers are locked up in a series, and these are guys that are uh, have won the MVP award and are just on top of their game right now. Trout with 1.2 wins above replacement and five homers. Yelich with one win above replacement and another five homers. He would have had six, but Trout robbed him of one last night. Um, my question to you is, of these two guys, one's in the NL, one's in the AL, who's more likely to win another MVP this year? Like you alluded to, we had a little, we had a little uh, MVP on MVP crime. Yeah. And I gotta be honest with you, I don't I don't know who's who's wrong there. And I'd like to say one of them is. I mean, Christian Yelich comes up, he's been making a story hitting these home runs, started the season off four for four in four games with home runs. It's kinda like Mike, you have a lot of highlight plays. You like to rob home runs. We get it. Let the let the kid have it. Yeah, let him have one. Come on. I mean I mean, Mike, how many how many times do you need to be ten wins above replacement? We get it. You're really good. Okay. Just he's just, just he's he's padding his defensive numbers. That's what it is. I just I don't need that. You're gonna do enough at the plate all year, Mike. Just just let the kid have a home run. You don't have to track down every fly ball. But but going into that, I if I had to pick who if I had money going on to it, I, I think I would probably pick Trout just because of he's he's done it more consistently year to year. Last year he had an unbelievable year for, for Christian Yelich, first MVP breakout year for him. And it was great to see him carry the Brewers in spots through the year and lead them to a National League championship series game seven. Yeah, but if I had to, if I had to actually put money on who I think it would be, it's got to be Mike Trout just because of the resume. Yeah, I think I would have to agree with you. Another thing to think about the obviously both AL and the NL MVP races are going to be contested this year, from what mm-hmm. we think. But I think the NL crowd is a little bit more crowded just because the in in the American League the last couple of years we've had Trout versus Mookie Betts and. It's been those two guys and then everybody else. And it very well could be that at the end of this season. Whereas in the NL, we have about five or six guys that can make a claim for it mm-hmm. because they're not quite on that level as Trout and Betts. That being said, um, yeah, I think Mike Trout is the better pick, but it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the season, Yelich puts up another great season. He loves playing in Milwaukee. He loves playing for yes, the Brewers. He does. And he has figured out how to find his power stroke. So um, my, my other question would be, we, we alluded to this a little bit with the wins above replacement comparison. Like you said, Trout's a perennial 10-win guy. Yelich got close to eight last year in his MVP season. Which one finishes with a higher wins above replacement? Uh, like I said before, I think it's got to be Trout. Just Just going off of just – the defense with playing center field, batting, batting, you know, in that third spot in the lineup, constantly coming up with run runners, hopefully in scoring position for him. I, I, I think if Trout is healthy through the entire year and plays the whole year, I, I, I think it'll be him. Having said that, I think Christian Yelich is more important to his team making a legitimate playoff run than Mike Trout is to the Angels. I think that. 
like as crazy as to say, there's no question Mike Trout's the best player, not only in the Angels, but probably in baseball. But I think Christian Yelich has a greater impact on his team in, in being important to going and making a deep run into the playoffs. Right, and that's just also uh, due to who their teammates are right. and the expectations on each team. I think that's a fair point. I definitely expect Mike Trout to be Mike Trout and finish in the double-digit wins-above-replacement uh, category, as he does every single year, it seems. But um, it wouldn't shock me. I know some of us out there, including myself, predicted Yelich would uh, bounce back to earth a little bit. And that being said, I love Yelich as a player, always have. Uh, he's looking like he's not going to slow down anytime soon. So um, – I'll say my favorite thing to say, which is we'll keep an eye on those two. Um, (laughs) The next point I want to bring up is Cody Bellinger. Oh, yeah. So moving on from that, um, (laughs) well, actually, we'll just – we'll go over him real quick. Uh, 1.2 wins above replacement. That equals Mike Trout coming into Tuesday. That in and of itself is impressive. Anytime you're you're talking about yourself along with Mike Trout, Cody's going to be happy. He's got seven home runs, 18 runs driven in, and the power is back for Cody Bellinger when it wasn't really there last year the same way it was in his rookie year. Yeah, he definitely went through a sophomore slump last year. There's really no getting around that. The power numbers were down. Uh, He's moving around from position to position. And although, you know, the Dodgers made it back to the World Series, Cody Bellinger didn't have the same impact that he necessarily had his rookie year. Uh, So – Starting off early, the 18 RBIs is obviously huge. The Dodgers are scoring a ton of runs right now, like up and down the board. They're they're not playing in a lot of close, close games, but Cody Bellinger seems to definitely have his stroke back this year. It's early, but he, he definitely looks way more similar to the player he was his rookie year than he does last year. Yeah, and the crazy thing for me about Cody Bellinger is he hit 39 home runs in 132 games his rookie year. He went all the way down to 25 in a full season last year. Uh, 25 is nothing to laugh at. And no. his, his wins above replacement didn't dip much. It went from 4 to 3.6. Mm-hmm. But uh, this looks like it's going to be his true breakout year. I mean, he's already got, you know, more than a fourth of his wins above replacement from his best year in the span of 11 games. So, uh, again, probably not going to keep up on this pace, but – definitely interesting to look at and uh you know this is early and all the stats we're talking about right now are early but one of the biggest things for Cody right now he's not striking out he's a guy who in his first two years was striking out 24 percent of the time it's Mm -hmm. only at 12 percent right now so um again if if that corrects itself a little bit yeah, the numbers are going to go down a little bit. But if he's able to keep this up and keep making contact with the baseball, we might have our NL MVP right there. It, it's certainly possible, and he is very capable. The uh, The thing that will be to watch, though, will be will he continue to be able to make contact and not strike out as much like you were saying? And and is this sustainable? Is it just a you know a quick, fast start, and then he's going to regress a little bit more to last year, or is he – going to build off this and, and have a really dynamic season and we'll only be able to tell once we get into august september well said let's keep both eyes on that one we're gonna keep both of them on there because you know cody bellinger's worth at least well at least an eye and a half 
So uh, I, I would say he's, I'd say he's easy an eye and a half. Yeah, I'm I'm on that. Uh, so the next thing we're <laughs> going to talk about, and uh, we're going to close out the show talking about this. Um, quickly, want to mention the Cubs. The Cubs uh, were having a bullpen crisis to start the year, but yeah. they they've seemed to have turned it around. But before this recent scoreless stretch by them, their bullpen was carrying a nine point eight five ERA and uh 2.26 walks hits uh divided by innings pitched on the season i should have just said a whip right there um <laughs> but, but anyway um so the, the the cubs bullpen looks like it's figuring itself out a little bit but again nothing is a sure thing in this game i mean coming into the year we thought the cubs had all the pieces in place to be the best team in the nl central and they certainly do but Right now, the bullpen's looking like the weak area of their team. Well, we said, I mean, when we did our preview for the uh, for the regular season, we thought this was their bullpen. I mean, the bullpen. This was their uh, this was their division to win in the NL Central. And the going off of looking at their whole team, you know that they have the offense. They're going to pitch well from the starting pitching perspective. I guess you could say the only question mark, as in with most teams, is how is their how is their bullpen going to close out games? And the answer right now is not good. Not uh, good, but better days may lie ahead. That's definitely possible. But, I mean, it, it kind of was really put on full tilt when uh, Texas made that six-run comeback and they blew the lead in the bottom of the ninth inning uh, with Joey Gallo running around the bases. That was kind of like the what's going on here, and it seemed to continue. So I don't think that they'll continue to have this struggle, and I do still believe that they'll win their division. But early on, the uh, the bullpen has been – uh, very questionable, and it, it's been a major concern for the Cubs. And through that, as was going to happen anyway with any problems that was going on with the Cubs, this is Joe Madden's supposed last year as a manager. And right. you have to and, – and the storylines, I don't think there's a lot of truth to them, but the storylines right now are, you know, it, is that having an effect on them? Right, and I, I don't know if we'll know the answer to that for a while now, but that's got to be a cloud hanging over their heads even just a little bit. Sure. So uh, we're going to talk about another bad bullpen, uh, the Nationals. So the Nationals came into the year expected to contend in the NL East. And uh, despite losing Trey Turner to an injury about a week and a half ago, um, they've looked good offensively, even without Mm -hmm. Bryce Harper. And the starting pitching largely has been there. The problem for them has also been the bullpen. Now I have this statistic 24 runs allowed in the eighth inning or later, that's a disaster. There's no other way to put it. Uh, You're not going to make the playoffs with with a bullpen like that. But that being said, and we're talking about uh, Tuesday night's game, Nationals versus Phillies, the Phillies were winning 6-1 to after uh, after five innings, and then the Nationals made one of the more improbable comebacks this season – they were able to fight back with a couple of key home runs in the seventh inning to make it six to five, scoreless in the eighth. And then this is one of my favorite things two outs, two strikes, nobody on in a one run game. The Nationals rookie Victor Robles steps up to the plate. And like I said, with two strikes, he hits a bomb to left field to tie the game. Um, I can just say what I know about Victor Robles. He's already been fun to watch. This was one of his signature moments early in the season. 
Well, it was kind of we talked about this before the podcast. Or it was kind of what I was, and what you alluded to with Rafael Devers. When you look at some of these young kids, they they're gonna make errors in the field. They're gonna run into some outs on the base paths. But there are single moments that you can pick out where they kind of rise above that rookie status or you know lack of experience, where they just kind of have that it factor. Yeah, and and I think as as you talked about, I think Victor Robles has has shown that even early on. Yeah, Victor Robles, um, any Nationals fans out there know it's been an adventure with him. The bat has looked good. The defense has looked good. He's run into some outs on the bases. But uh, this was a moment that really is key for him early in his career because he came up to the plate with no fear. And I think that's something that a lot of veteran players struggle with when you're facing down a one-run deficit in the ninth inning I mean, let's let's put it this way. You're expected to get out in that situation. That's that's mm-hmm. the most likely thing to happen. So to come in with two strikes and find a way to hit a home run, can't give him enough credit. A lot of people have picked him as the NL rookie of the year uh preseason and I I think that's a fair a fair thing to say and I think this adds to the resume already with his bat looking hot. And then um then came probably the most crucial at-bat of the game. Bryce Harper had already hit a three-run homer in this game against his former team. It was off Steven Strasburg earlier in the game. So he comes in in a tie ball game in the bottom of the ninth with a runner on base, and he's facing the Nationals' closer, Sean Doolittle. This was a move I liked. I liked this from uh, Nats manager Davey Martinez to – bring in your quote-unquote closer in a non-save situation. That was the out of the game. Bryce Harper with a runner on in a tie game in the ninth inning. It doesn't matter if it's a save situation or not. That's the out that you have to get. And no so question. He, he brings in Doolittle, and Doolittle gets him, which was you know great to see as a Nationals fan. And then we get to the bottom of the – or excuse me, we get to the top of the 10th inning, and with two runners on base and nobody out, Nationals' second-year player, Juan Soto, hit a moonshot right down the right field line to take a three-run lead. Hey, you think that kid's going to be good? <laughs> I think he's got a chance. I think he, he has a chance to be good. The, the one thing I don't want to skip over, and, and this is one of the things that I found to be most impressive, is Victor Robles' home run. It was on a 2-2 count, right? Yes. To be able as a rookie to know that it's a one-run game and exhibit patience and having a quality of bat and not trying to just leave Earth and be a hero is something that's very hard to find not only in rookies but in any professional baseball player. Anytime you get into those situations, guys are immediately thinking, home run, I got to tie the game up, da-da-da-da-da. Victor Robles is just having a good at bat and he puts a good swing on the ball and it happens to go out. I mean, he hit the ball hard and he deserved a home run. But what was interesting is that in no point in that bat did I feel like he wanted to, he was trying to hit a home run. No, and that, it, it definitely is a good point. Yeah. You, you always want to see good at bats, especially in that situation. We see it a lot of times when teams are down by one run, it's so tempting to just swing for the fences. If you get your pitch, you're the hero, you did it, you tied the game or you won the game or whatever. But yeah, I was definitely impressive by Victor Robles and can't give him enough credit. He's young, 
he's got a lot to learn, but he's ha- already had some great highlights this season. And that I think goes, this <laughs> goes double for Juan Soto. No question. I think this is going to be a huge. I think this is going to be a huge boost for the Nationals. You've got to you, your bullpen is the reason that the Nationals stayed in the game and gave themselves a chance to win. Right. Um, after Strasburg going, I think it was only four and two thirds. No, he only went four actually. Oh, he only went four. Six, but... six runs and in four innings, which uh, which was not good. But yes, yeah, six scoreless innings from the bullpen. And then and then having your team battle back from improbable odds to to win to win a game. I think those are those are even early in the season. I think that those are um, season defining wins, and that's something that you can really build momentum and positivity off in the clubhouse. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So uh, let's say we'll keep three fourths of an eye on the Nationals bullpen, <laughs> and uh, and the other quarter of an eye on the Cubs. Yeah, and uh, we'll be looking at some bullpens. It's not a not been a great year for a lot of teams uh, coming out of the bullpen. I don't know if it's just pitchers settling in in April, hitters getting off the hot starts. What the what the problem is, but uh, mm-hmm. it looks like at least those two teams are starting to trend in the right direction. I agree. So uh, I want to thank you all so much for listening to Stats on Deck as we covered the Red Sox World Series 2018 season. Um, Talked about the Yasiel Puig versus Pittsburgh brawl, Mike Trout, Christian Yelich, Cody Bellinger, and then the Nationals and Cubs bullpens. Uh, I would like to make one request of any listeners out there. If you do like the podcast, like it and review it on iTunes. That always helps us a lot and share it with your friends. Um, Coming at you from a Tuesday night, I'm Nick Laporte, and I was joined by Jake Adams. Jake? Boom, baby. Yo, small.